Now at this time I'm going to ask uh, Troy Harrison and his family if they would come up. Many of you all know by now, I hope that you do, but this is uh, a little bit of a sad day, bittersweet for, for us. This would be Troy Harrison's last Sunday here at our church. Troy has been associate pastor here for several years, and Troy now has taken uh, the lead pastor position at Siloam Baptist Church in Easley, South Carolina. Uh, we are excited for him and his family. Uh, we are thrilled that God has called him there, and we are really happy for that church because uh, what churches need are, are faithful people. Hopefully you know enough about the, the work of God. Come on up, Andrew. And hopefully you know enough about the work of God and what true ministry is about is that God is not looking for all-stars or superheroes or, or people that think they can change the world necessarily. Uh, God is looking for people who will be faithful to him who will love him and serve him and be used by him. And Siloam is getting absolutely that in Troy and in, in your family. And we thank God for that. So I want this to be a little bit of a sending off. Just wanted to have them before you all and want to say a prayer for their family. Um, Troy starts there next Sunday. He'll be preaching there next Sunday morning, November the 1st. His family will be around until the end of the school semester. And so you'll be able to see them more. Before they leave today, please find Troy and hug his neck and shake his hand. Even during the greeting time, I saw some people looking you in the eye saying, man, it's, it's, it's hard to see you go, and that's a good thing. You know, I've often heard in, in a lot of the books that I read about ministry and churches, uh, you know, Jesus told, tells us to go, right? And we are to be, Christians are to be sending people. And I often hear that the best churches send off their best people. And I don't know if that's true across the board. We don't always do that necessarily. But in this case, I think it is. We have loved uh, having y'all a part of us and us being a part of you all, and we're thrilled that y'all are getting to go there now. Okay, Church, please join me as I pray for Troy and the Harrison family. Father in heaven, we worship you, that we see here a family that loves you. God, I thank you so much for Troy and Jennifer. I'll never forget how they, they came here that first Sunday when we were doing an Ecuador presentation, and it did not go well. And yet through that, God, you led them to be a part of us. God, we thank you for that. God, I thank you that you have saved Troy and given him a calling upon his life and his heart to share the gospel in your name and to be a leader in a church. And I thank you, God, that you've now paired him up with just the place. God, I pray you'd lead him. I pray you would always guard him from sin. I pray you'd keep his heart pure and humbled before you, that he would always fear you, that he would do what's right. God, make him a man of conviction, a man of integrity, a man of honesty, and a man of faithfulness. And God, I pray that he would always proclaim the word, knowing that the story of Jesus dying on the cross and rising again to newness of life would be the very thing that God uses to change lives. God, I ask your blessing on Troy as he goes and on his family. God, we give you much thanks for their influence and their time here. We pray your blessings upon them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. All right, now, Psalm 73, if you would, please turn there. If you didn't bring a Bible, that's okay. It'll be page 527 in the Pew Bible, that black Bible there in front of you in the Pew, page 527, Psalm 73. I feel like every time I pick out another Psalm for us to go through on Sunday morning, I tell you how it's the best, or it should be your favorite, or... You need to go and memorize it. Um, and maybe that's true, just how the Word of God is. I, I won't say that Psalm 73 is my favorite or that it needs to be your favorite. 
But I will say it, is to be, it, it needs to be one that you need to have flagged that you need to turn to often. This psalm is a way for you to understand yourself better. Okay, This psalm is a way for you to understand yourself better. If you're like me, then you have some of those days where you just think, I'm just struggling. It's been a hard day, hard week. I'm sure you have those type of days. I do. And you sit down with your Bible and you don't really know what you should read. You think, man, I need to read God's Word, but you don't really know what to read. Let me remind you today or ask you today or tell you today that Psalm 73 is one of those. Psalm 73 is one of those psalms where you're just tired or frustrated or sad or discouraged or, 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 or mad about something. Turn to Psalm 73. It's 28 verses. It's not super long, but it's good. You will see yourself in it, I pray. Now, here's how it works. Have you ever seen one of those things that people have where it looks like it's nothing and they tell you to look at it and if you look at it long enough then you see something? Y'all ever seen those type of pictures? Miss Anna Harris brought one of those to, to Bible study on a Thursday morning just a couple weeks ago. And she told me to look at it and it would be a picture of Jesus on the cross. And it was truly just a, like a blank page of uh, nothing. And so I stared at it for a little bit and I thought she was trying to pull one over on me. She said, keep looking at it. And I'm looking at it. I'm not seeing anything. And then she says, well, it says you need to stay there for at least five minutes. So now I'm thinking she really is trying to get me with this. So I'm sitting here like this for five minutes, and at the end of it, I'm like seeing nothing. And then somebody else walks in, and she's like, check this out. If you look at this, you'll see the cross. And they're like, oh, I do see it. It's right there. I see everything. I'm like, what? I don't get those. They never work for me. But then there's another type of picture where it's not like a a whatever blank-looking thing. It's a picture of something. And if you look at it one way, it looks like this. And if you look at it another way, it looks like this. One that's really popular is that like uh, vase candlestick thing that goes like this. And if you look at it right there, it looks like, oh yeah, that's a picture of a vase candlestick. If you look at it another way, it's two faces looking at each other. You've probably seen that one. That's the most popular, I think. Or there's another one where it looks like a face that's looking at you like this. And then you look at it a little bit longer and it looks like a face that you're looking at like that. You've seen that one too. And when you see those, you know, people say, well, I see this. And somebody says, no, I see that. And what it comes down to is it's depending on how you're looking at it, right? And I want to challenge you all today that, that so is life. It really depends on how you're looking at it. And one of the problems that, that, that the church, that Christians have today, is that we don't look at life the way God would have us look at life. We, we maybe we're under-discipled. Maybe we've never had a pastor or leaders that have taught us enough to help us figure out how we're supposed to look at it. To, to let us see that I need to be looking at life a certain way. But some of the most miserable and frustrated people in the world are those who are trying to say they love Jesus and follow God, but they look at life just like their friends that don't love Jesus and follow God. If you view life the same way an unbeliever does, you're probably frustrated or discouraged. And so I want you to hear today at the beginning, well, it depends on how you look at it. It depends on how you look at it. And Psalm 73 is going to give us a man of God. This one's not by David. It's by Asaph. And with Asaph, we're going to see how he views life right and wrong. 
He's going to be honest about some ways and some of his feelings. I told y'all weeks ago when we started the Psalms that one of the reasons I wanted to go through the Psalms is it would connect with all of our emotions and all of our life experiences. And Psalm 73 will do that. I want to just start at the beginning and go all the way through it. But before we do that, I want you to hear these ideas. The first, it's just one verse, is that God is good. The second is that when we walk by sight, that is, what we see, we distort our view of God's goodness. Walking by sight, in other words, what you see and experience, will distort your view of God's goodness. But then if you walk by faith, it will bring clarity to God's goodness. Notice that in the first one I'm saying your view of God's goodness because God's goodness is not actually distorted. Your viewing of it is when you are going by only what you see and experience. God's goodness is seen, rather clarified, when you are walking by faith. Now, many of you are picking up on walking by faith, walking by sight. Paul teaches the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 7, that we do not, we do not walk by sight. We live by faith. The righteous will live by faith, the Bible says. So I want to pick that up as we look at Psalm 73. So let's begin here at verse 1. A Psalm of Asaph, Psalm 73. He begins with, Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Now in verse 2, he's about to shift gears, but I want to stop right there at verse 1. And I want to give you this first point that God is good. I hope that you're here today knowing that yes, God is good. But I want to remind you that He really is good. And the only idea of one true God is that He would be good. There is no evil found in Him. When we start to think about God, we must think of God as good, as all-knowing, as all-powerful, as the Creator, as the one who cannot mess up. God is holy. He hates sin. He cannot sin. It is impossible for God to lie, as Paul writes to Titus in the beginning of Titus. God cannot lie. God cannot do bad things. So everything that we see God doing is good. And before there was sin in the world... We have in the beginning of the Bible the creation account where God tells us how he created everything. And the one thing that came up at the end of day one, God saw everything at the end of day one and it was good. Day two, God saw everything at the end of day two and it was good. Day three, God saw everything that he had made in the third day and it was good. Day four, God saw everything that he had made in the fourth day and, and it was good. Day five, God saw everything that he had made in the fifth day and it was good. Day six, God saw everything that he had made on day six, including the people. And he said, behold, it was very good. The beginning of time, with God being maker, without any disobedience in the world, no sinfulness, there was nothing but goodness. Nothing but goodness. Why? Because the good God had made everything. It wasn't until people, distracted by Satan brought sin and evil into the world that we began to try to figure out whether God truly is good in our arrogance. Truly God is good. And thinking on the goodness of God reminds us of so many things. The Bible tells us that He is rich in mercy, strong in love. He is slow to anger. The Bible says that He forgives sins. Oh, what goodness. The Bible says that Every good gift comes from God. 
there's anything in your life that you consider good, whether that be your health or your family or your job or even your looks, those are from God. God has been good to you. Have you ever found yourself, at least in some categories, saying, man, God, God has really been good to me. God has been good to me. Of course He has. God only can do good. He is a good God. And so I want to ask you here today, as we start to navigate Psalm 73, as we start to think through, as we start to think through how we see, experience, take in God's goodness, let's begin with the fact that God is good. There is no other way for Him to be. There's no such thing as a bad God. And if there is a bad God, He's not really God. And for people who say they have a God and that God's bad, it's not God. It's a false God. It's not the real God. And Asaph in this psalm begins with, Truly, truly God is good to Israel, His people. Truly He is. He knows that. To those who are pure in heart. He equates the people of God to those whose hearts are pure. Those who understand God, that He is good. And then in verse 2, he moves in a different direction. He says, but, and is this not life? We know that God is good. Yeah, I'll give you that God's good. But when I start to talk about me and my life and my experience and the way that I go and all the things that I'm dealing with and the troubles and the stresses and all that, it's hard for me to understand how you can say God is good completely all the time in everything if I'm dealing with all this. And that's something that you and I can connect with, right? That is the reality. If you've ever tried to do any sort of love or outreach or ministry to somebody that doesn't know God or doesn't go to church, this is the conversation that you're going to be in within five minutes. Hey, God is good. He could change your life. Yeah, but my situation and all this, and I'm going through this, and it's hard to filter our experiences through who God is. Most people in the world will give you, okay, God is a good God and He's my maker, but what do I do about all this that I'm dealing with? And so it is with Asaph. He says, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Asaph sees himself at the very bottom of discouragement. Notice he has not stumbled and slipped. He is not gone from declaring that God is good. It does not begin with, truly, God is wrong. God is false. God is bad. That's not what Asaph says. He almost did, though. He almost stumbled, almost fell. He was almost gone, some translations say. My feet had nearly slipped. Why? What was Asaph dealing with? Verse 3 tells us, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Hmm. Here's Asaph's problem, and is this not going to touch us today? He was envious of the wicked people. He was envious of the arrogant people. He was envious. He was jealous, if you will. Jealousy, such a huge problem in our culture today. He was jealous of those people that did not know God, that were living in their pride and all their successes, that were living and boasting and thriving in all of their prosperity. He was jealous of them. And when he saw them thriving, it bothered him. A question that we've dealt with many times. Books have been written about it. I don't like the question, but this is similar to where Psalm 73 is going. Why do bad things happen to good people is the, what the, 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 
the good people, if there are such a thing, would ask. And why does it look like the bad people always get the good things? Just saying that makes me feel sick because those categories of good and bad people are so distorted. But you know what I'm saying. And in many ways, this is the age-old question that people have to deal with. Right? Why is it that you know so many people who are trying to live their lives right and would make such good parents, but they can't have kids? And why is it that so many people that don't want their kids have plenty of kids? Right? These type of things. Asaph sees this and it bothered him so much he had almost slipped. He would almost gone. He had almost said there's no way God can be good. There is no way God could be good when I see this in the world is what Asaph says. I'm not even sure. I know that God is good when I think about God. But then when I shift my eyes away from who God is and what I know about Him and to see what's going on in the world, the prosperity of the wicked people thriving, the dishonest person at my work getting a promotion over me who always tries to do the right thing. When I see that type of stuff happening, it, it, it just undoes me. And it's a, it's a jealousy. It's a jealousy. Charles Spurgeon says, it is a pitiful thing that an heir of heaven should have to confess I was envious. It is a pitiful thing that an heir of heaven would have to confess I was envious. Jealous, jealousy and envy means... I want that. I want your position. I'd rather be where you are than where I am. Why are you better off than me? Notice this is a child of God who knows that truly God is good and he's envious of that. Is heaven and eternal life and nothing but the goodness of God not enough? You see where I'm going with this. Walking by sight will distort your view of God's goodness. Well, what was he looking at? Certainly not God and His goodness now, right? What was he looking at when he saw them? I want to ask you if perhaps the reason why sin doesn't bother you anymore is because all you look at is sin. Notice that the more and more you look at purity in God, the more sin bothers you. But the more and more all you do is look at is sin, sin doesn't bother you. Here, what's his problem? I was looking at them. One commentator says that his eye was fixed too much on one thing. He saw their present and forgot about their future. He saw their outward display and he overlooked their soul's discomfort. He actually thought that they were prospering for a little bit. He couldn't see it by faith. He only saw it by sight. He thought they were prospering more than him. His view was distorting what he knew about God. And then he goes on. Verse 4. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. What an interesting thing. Now he is clearly going down a sinful road of thinking about their experiences. He's thinking that even their deaths are easy. Not only are their lives easy and their, their lives easy and them full of prosperity, but even their deaths are easy. Their lives are prosperous. Their deaths are pain-free. Now, is this true? Not totally. But he's got his eyes on somebody who had a pain-free death, and he thinks they don't even know God, and even their death is pain-free, and it's bothering me. I'm envious of it, and I'm jealous of it. Their bodies are fat and sleek. It looks like they've got it good. 
And it is true that people that don't know God will look to the death of their loved one to try to find some comfort in it. I've done so many funerals where somebody says, well, they just died peaceful and that's all that matters to me. How somebody dies in their final hours or final days means literally nothing compared to how peaceful their eternity is. The most peaceful death or the most uncomfortable death doesn't tell you or I where they're going. He is so out of perspective here. Matthew Henry says, Men may die like lambs and yet have their place forever with the goats. Folks, how you die does not tell us where you're going. The faith that you have while you live does. Your hatred for sin, like Bradley said, your love for the redemption that God gives through the killing of His Son and the resurrection from the grave, that will tell us where you're going. And whether I get to sit by your bedside for hours on end, talking to you, praying with you, comforting you as you peacefully drift off to passing away, or whether it is quick and sudden and tragic and ugly, doesn't tell us. But here, he's so out of order that he thinks their deaths are pain-free. Verse 5, they're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. He's frustrated. It seems to him that, that these people who have nothing to do with God are happier or better off than him, and he's bothered by it. He's upset by it. His, his foot is almost stumbling. He is nearly slipping. He is envious and jealous at them. In verse 11, he asks, and they say, How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? And that's true. Many of the people that live a, an, an ungodly life will even say, God doesn't care. God's not real. I can go and sin and do this, and God's not going to stop me. Watch. Tomorrow I'll go and do this. I'll live it up. I'll do this. I can do this or do that. And God's not going to do anything about it because God's not real. He's not able to. They presume so much in their fault. And he, he sees them saying this, and it's bothering him. And he's beginning to entertain, well, maybe they're right. Verse 12, Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. Now, is he right? That's a good question of itself, right? Maybe for some, but not in totality, right? Not everybody you know that's ungodly is just comfortable and rich. Surely you know that. Many are miserable and suffering. But his perspective right now has him that way. Those that he's looking at has him that way. And so what, what's it going to do to him? How's he going to handle this? How's he going to react? How do you? I'm telling you, the difference here is whether you walk by faith or walk by sight. Notice, his sight is all on them. He's already seen their prosperity in verse 3. He's seen their pride in verse 6. And now, with their question in verse 11, he's seen their presumption. Verse 13. Such a sad verse. All in vain I've kept my heart clean. And washed my hands 
in innocence. He's beginning to think that there's no sense in him trying to live for God. There's no sense in him striving for obedience. It is vain that I have guarded my heart and kept it pure. It's in vain that I was trying my best to be innocent of evil, like Romans 16 says. His walking by sight has distorted his view of the goodness of God so much that he thinks now that God must not be good because the world doesn't look like there's a good God in it. Do not we hear that all the time? Both from people we know and from what we see on the news. God's supposed to be good, but when I look at the world that we're living in, there's no way that He's good. There's too much messed up and it's messing me up. And you know what? Maybe I'm just wasting my time with church and Bible and purity and striving and obedience and giving and sacrifice and loving. Maybe there's no use, he says. Verse 14, For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Matter of fact, maybe I'm just living wrong, he says. He's so distorted here. I never forget, I knew a single person that was a Christian or said they were who didn't get married by a young age and now they were up in their 20s and they were beginning to worry whether they would get married. I was telling them one time, well, trust God. He he knows what He's doing with you. There's no shame in being late 20s and not married yet. I know plenty and plenty and plenty of people who get married in late 20s or 30s or 40s or whenever. And this person said to me, all I've ever done has been good to God and this is the life He gives me. My heart hurt to think of that perspective. My heart hurt for them that they would feel that way. And at the same time, I was a little bit scared to think that one would boastfully say to God, all I've ever done is good to you and this is what you're going to give me, God. As if God owes us anything. Asaph is feeling this right now. Again, walking by sight has distorted his view of God's goodness. He began with, God, you're good, but his life and looking at other people's lives, particularly the ungodly's prospering and pride, has confused him and led him the wrong way. Verse 15, and here's where it begins to shift. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. He didn't say what he felt. Everybody see that? He didn't say what he felt. He wanted to go ahead and just say all of that and curse God and die like Job's wife told Job to do. To throw it all in and give up on all of it. But he didn't. And here at verse 15, his mind is beginning to shift back. He's moving now from walking by sight to walking by faith, trusting in that good God, believing that God knows what He's doing, trusting God, and he says... I didn't say it. If I had said it, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. I would have done a harm to the children of God that should not be there. I would have brought discouragement or blasphemy. I would have brought misleading that should not be there. He didn't say what he felt. He didn't say what he was thinking. Well, he certainly didn't have Facebook then, right? Because it seems now that as soon as somebody thinks something before they've even completed the thought, they've already typed it out and posted it. And people will share every single feeling they've got, right or wrong. They'll trash somebody, blast somebody. They'll state whatever they're feeling. 
It's like we've lost the filter of, okay, I'm thinking this, but I shouldn't say it. Folks, I hope that you know that there are many, many, many thoughts you have that everybody else doesn't need to hear. I'm serious. Learn to stop. I can't tell you how many times I have sat down and thought about tweeting something out and I thought, it doesn't need to be said. And I've deleted it. Asaph has come to the realization here that he's got some 13, 14 verses built up inside of him of bitterness and jealousy and envy. He's looking at them. He's not looking at God. He's not understanding them through what God is doing. He's not saying, God... Why is it that I feel this way? God, why is it that it seems to be that the wicked prosper? Why? He's not. He's just looking at it, making his own conclusions, and then he's mad about it. And most of his observations aren't even accurate. But he held his tongue. He didn't say it. Church, would we resolve here today to think before we speak? A couple weeks ago, I gave a devotional to the soccer team at the high school, and I shared with them that passage in John chapter 1 that says, everybody should be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And they loved that. We have two ears, one mouth, let's listen more, then we talk. Quick to hear, slow to speak. Some people talk so much that there's no way they're going to say a lot of good things. You say so much that bad things come out. And not necessarily evil things, just it would have been better off if you hadn't said that. And Asaph stopped there. So now he's pondering, right? When you finally stop and you get to be quiet for a little bit, you just step back and I'm just taking all this in. Verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Amen, right? How many times have you heard in the last year, the world seems to be getting crazy? Wild world we're living in. Messed up world we're living in. If I hear, if, if I meet somebody new that hears that I'm a preacher, pastor, I guarantee you within two minutes that's the comment they're going to make. Messed up world we're living in, preacher. All the time. Asaph feels this 2,000, 3,000 years ago. But when I thought how to understand all this, it seemed to me to be a wearisome task. Who could figure out life and what it's all about? This is a mess. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. What a world of wonder. Your life and my life, and your world and my world and this world, can learn and can grow from when you and I get into worship. When you and I get into the place where there are people worshiping God. He was all messed up 2 through 15 until He came into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned therein. Something happened to Asaph's perspective. Something happened to the way he was viewing the world and viewing his experience and viewing life and viewing their lives. Something happened to the way he viewed the ungodly. He viewed viewed sinfulness. Something happened to him when he got into worship. This is why, along with other reasons... The Bible commands you to not neglect worship. 
You should be here regularly, as often as you can. And when you miss it, listen to it on the internet. And when you miss it, come back for Sunday night. Because you want the Word, in, the word, the word getting into you. Many of you and many other people that you know are sitting at home, burdened by the worrisome task of trying to figure out life in the world. Why am I going through this? And you've not allowed the worship of Almighty God and the perspective of walking by faith to shed light on what you're going through. And learn from Asaph's experience, if you're going to try to filter all this yourself just from viewing the world, it will mess you up. You will be discouraged. You will be confused. You'll be jealous of them. Think about how many Christians you know that are jealous and envious these days because somebody else has more money or more health or more kids or more friends or more time or more something. Instead of going into the sanctuary of God. He says in verse 17, when I went into the sanctuary of God, I discerned therein. Now, he is no longer walking by sight, which distorts his view of God's goodness. Now he is moving into walking by faith, which will bring clarity to verse 1. Truly, God is good to us. Verse 18, truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. In other words, once he gets into worship and he sees this great God that is loving and merciful and forgiving to people, he hears the other side of the gospel message that says that if anybody wants to oppose God and not accept his love, not be forgiven of their sins, then God will punish them. There is a judgment coming for all those who don't want God. And you are to live every moment of your life thinking that. So that you don't ever get envious of the ungodly, you get broken for the ungodly. You want somebody who doesn't know God to come to know God. You don't want them to, to, to die without the forgiveness of sins. You want them to know the forgiveness of sins. One thing is very true of Asaph. He wasn't about ready to go over there and put his arm around them and love on them and say, Can I tell you about Jesus? Can I tell you about how you get to heaven? Can I tell you about how you can have your sins forgiven? He wasn't about to have that conversation. Why? Because he was so envious of them. He wasn't even thinking about God and them. He was just thinking about them being better than him, and that messed him up. Verse 20, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart. He's starting to realize that there's a problem with the way he's thinking. What is his problem? Him. Asaph is realizing and this is not the way I should be thinking. And the problem's not them. The problem's me. The problem's the way I'm looking at it. I'm looking at it through sight, through what I see and through what I'm experiencing, and it's not causing me to understand the goodness of God. It has distorted God's goodness. But now, he went into the sanctuary, he's looking at the worship of God, and now he's starting to see and understand God, what God's like, what God has said. God that he's rich in love, for God so loved the world. Right? We read that just a little bit ago. And what did the very next verse say? God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. If somebody is preaching a condemnation, they are not preaching the whole message of God. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. He sent Him that the world might be saved through Him. The world is condemned already. We don't even need God to condemn us. We have condemned ourselves with our going away from God and our sinfulness and taking life to our own way. Asaph is reminding himself this now that he's gone to worship. 
You come to worship and you realize, hey, God's on his throne. You come to worship and you realize God knows what he's doing. You come to worship and you realize that God is going to save and love and forgive so many people who will trust in him. And if somebody doesn't want God, then at the last day, God will not want them and he will cast them away to hell forever. And Asaph is reminding himself this. His problem is not them. His problem is him. He says this beautifully, masterfully in verse 22. And I want to ask you today if you would underline 22, maybe even stick it on the mirror in your bathroom. All the prosperity preachers want to get you to put a, a verse up on your bathroom mirror and all it is is telling you about how great you are. And when you think about how great you are, you get envious and jealous of other people. But look at verse 22. I love this verse. This verse reminds me of me as much as any verse in all of Psalm 73. I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. It's not a good way to be. But it is the way that will get you to God. If you don't know your heart to ever be brutish and ignorant, if you've never known yourself to be beastly toward God and His ways, then I dare say that you even know God. A beast is a strong word to use, is it not? A beast is the worst of all of God's creatures. The beast is the word, this word in the plural, is the behemoth in the book of Job, for those of y'all who know what that is. Beast is the biggest animal that God created in creation, whatever that might be. This is bigger than oxen, bigger than cattle. Beast is the woolly mammoth. Beast is the giant elephant with tusks. Beasts are the biggest animals that God created. He says, this is me. I'm out of control. I see people making good money and I'm mad at them. I see people happy, dying, pain-free, and I think there's something wrong with you, God. I'm a beast in my heart. I'm not content. I don't know what it means to live by faith. I'm not even thinking about your goodness, he says. He's on his way to understanding mercy because he's understanding his own sinful heart. If you don't understand your sinful heart, you will never understand mercy. But when you understand that your heart is beastly toward God, you will cry out to him and say, God, will you forgive me? Perhaps the reason why you haven't asked God for forgiveness for a sin. Now, I know that you've taught well enough that at the end of your prayer, you say, God, forgive us for all of our sins. But when was the last time that you were aware of a sin and you said, God, forgive me of this one? Forgive me for this thing. I hurt her today. I hurt my son today. I hurt my neighbor today. I messed up all my co-workers because I'm so prideful. Nobody likes to talk to me. Nobody ever asks me out to lunch because I'm so rude. I'm a beast inside and I've never acknowledged it. I think the problem's them. They just can't figure me out. The problem's me. Asaph knows. He was brutish and ignorant. He was like a beast towards you. And then in verse 23, he finds the answer. And we coast now toward the end. It's awesome. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. And you hold my right hand. Folks, that's our God. It is okay for you to admit that you're a beast. It's okay for you to admit that you're ignorant or that you're brutish. It's okay for you to admit that you lie or that you're pride, prideful. It's okay for you to admit that you're an adulterer or that you're a thief. It's okay. It's okay for you to admit that you failed as a parent or failed as a spouse or failed as an employee. It's okay. 
It's okay for you to say that you've got these problems or those problems if you will run to the mercy of God and be forgiven. If you will realize that God is not uh, standoffish. God doesn't have to have His hand sanitizer to hold your hand. God is so pure, God comes down to brutish, beastly people and grabs their hand and says, come with me. He takes people to His own. And Asaph knows that. And Asaph's whole world is spinning back into order now. What caused him to be a, a distorted view of God's goodness is now starting to be a beautiful clarity, crystal clear picture of the goodness of God because he sees the world in light of God. And he says, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. He knows that in God there is redemption and he will go to heaven Charles Spurgeon says that the very wisest of men have enough folly in them to ruin themselves unless grace prevents it. Amen. Thus then, one commentator writes, Asaph turns away from the glitter which fascinated him to the true gold which was his real treasure. And he asks, Whom have I in heaven but you. Verse 25. You see, when he was looking at the world, he had forgotten his desperate need for God. He had forgotten that he has a Father in heaven. He had forgotten that thing that you know that Jesus teaches us when He says, when you pray to your Father, don't you know that God already knows that you need these things? When you pray to God for more money this week, when you pray to God for more food or more clothing, when you pray to God for your children, don't you already know that God knows that you need this? He, Asaph reminded himself this. Whom have I in heaven but you? Keep going, verse 25. And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God, but God, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And as long as you read verses 2 through 15 and you don't have a but God in it, you will be a distorted, you will be confused, you'll be hurting, you'll be depressed, you'll be up, you'll be down. You'll never make sense of it. And at the end of it, you will be bitter, you'll be jealous, you'll be envious because you don't know but God. You don't have a perspective that says, yeah, but here's how I view the world. Why do bad things happen to good people? But God. Why do good things happen to bad people? But God. But God is our perspective. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Verse 27 and 28 and we're done. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. If you're looking for one verse that sums up about everything, there you go. Verse 27 of Psalm 73. But for me, and I hope you say for me too, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God <clears throat> my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Asaph looks at the world and says, some things don't seem to be right. The Bible teaches us that the world is under a curse until Christ returns, until heaven is made new, until the world is ended, until this heaven and earth pass away and God creates the new heaven and new earth, until those who reject Him are sent to hell, until God takes His children to heaven. Until that happens, the world is under a curse. It's going to always feel distorted in some sense. It's always going to be backwards. It is. People are always going to feel, at times, the struggle of what Asaph feels. That's not going away. The only thing that can bring clarity to it is Seeing 
the goodness of God. The Bible says that while you were yet sinning, Christ died for you. While you were brutish and ignorant, while you were a beast, Jesus died on the cross for you. That whoever would believe Him, trust Him, would be saved, would be forgiven. Verse 27 says, those who are wrong, those who are far, those, who, those will perish. But as for me, it's good to be near God. About five years ago, I had a man tell me about his friend who was also a churchman at another church. Somebody very involved at his church. Had been for years. And then a tragedy happened with one of his kids. And that man told the church, if God's going to treat my family like this, we don't want anything to do with God. And they left God, and they left the church. That's a sad situation. That is somebody who only looks at life through the sight of what they're experiencing. That is not somebody who looks at life by faith. That says God is good. He knows what he's doing with me. He will take care of me. Who else do I have other than you, God? And as for me, the only goodness that I'm aware of is to be near God. Micah does an outstanding job every time. We just sang these lyrics. When peace like a river attends my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll. I mean, sorrows are rolling through your life. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole of it, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. God has told you that if you will hope in Him and He be your refuge, you will be safe in His goodness forever. And it will never end. Don't miss it. Don't reject it. And don't you please dare let the world and the distorted view of it looking like them prospering cause you to doubt Him. May we walk by sight. I'm sorry, may we walk by faith, believing that God is good. Truly, God is good to us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for Psalm 73. And for Asaph being open about this experience. Oh, Father, we pray that we would be those who filter the hard experiences of life through you. You are a good God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.